Okay. We're doing now Devarim. We're A. We are Monday's portion. And we're up to chapter 12, verse 11. So in the previous verse, we're saying that we can't behave once we come into Israel the same way we're behaving here in the desert. When they would cross into Israel, they'd be immediately permitted to bring up the offerings on the personal altar. But on that personal altar, you can't offer everything as it can offer in the tabernacle. Of course, the tabernacle is very convenient because it was right there always traveling with them. When they're going to cross the Jordan and settle into the land of Israel, then, verse 11, let it be that the place where God, your God, chooses to place his presence therein, it is there. You shall bring all that I'm commanding you, the burnt offerings, the holy offerings, the tithes, the hand offerings, the promissory offerings that you pledge to God. In other words, after we have the conquest of the land, the division of the land, then this is going to happen, which would seem, well, okay, it took them seven years to conquer and seven years to divide, so it must be 14 years later this is going to happen. But as Rashi told us, the final Rashi of yesterday's portion, that this entire goal of the conquest and the apportionment and the peace didn't occur until the times of David, many, many years after the Jews came to Israel. And at that time, Rashi explains, God is saying here to build the sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem, which is what happened. David said, listen, now we're at peace. And David said to the prophet, the prophet at the time was nothing. And he said, it doesn't make sense. I'm here in this palace and, and the ark of God is just in somewhere. And there, in that place, you're going to bring all these offerings which means in the temple. Now, previously, we had said something very similar. Now, in verse 11, in the fifth verse, that verse seems to be saying the same thing. But that was talking about another stage of the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was in Shiloh, where it was for many, many years. Here, in our verse, we're talking about the temple proper when it's Jerusalem. So you'd think the two verses should be back-to-back. This is what you do in the tabernacle, and it's in Shiloh. This is what you do with the temple in Jerusalem. But they actually separated to imply that there's a time between the two when you do not have to offer in the tabernacle or in the temple because they're not functioning as such. And then again, you're allowed to offer on the personal altar, meaning when the Jews came to Israel, as we said. They could build personal offerings, altars for certain offerings. In the desert, they didn't build a personal altar, was called a Bama. They offered everything in the tabernacle. But when they're in Israel and the tabernacle is not next to them and they want to offer an offering to God, certain offerings they're allowed to build on a personal altar. But when the tabernacle came to Shiloh and it was there for many, many years, then you were not allowed to build a personal altar. You have to go to Shiloh. But then Shiloh was destroyed. And between the destruction of Shiloh and the next major dwelling of the tabernacle, and Nob, they were allowed personal altars. When Nob was destroyed until it went to its next spot, in Gibbon, again they were allowed personal 
altered. And they were, these personal altars were allowed basically until the temple was built in Jerusalem. Once the temple was built in Jerusalem, no more do you have personal altars. And even in the time between the two temples, that we'll say 70-year era, they were not allowed to make personal altars. Once they built the temple first in Jerusalem, this is a temple forever, and no longer can anyone build a personal altar. And when talking about the, the offerings of your promises, it says, Mishar, the choices, which in general is that when we're offering an offering to God, we have to offer from the choices, from the best. We give God from the best of what we have. Next verse. You are to rejoice in the presence of God, your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male slaves, your female slaves, the Levite who's in your city. He's rejoicing with you because, as the verse says, he has no portion or territory with you. So therefore, you have to give him to rejoice as well. Take heed, which Rash explained means this is now a negative commandment. Take heed lest you offer up your burnt offerings anywhere you envision as proper. Meaning, you can't just say, oh, anywhere I envision, meaning whatever occurs to me. You're not allowed to do that. We're saying no. God designated a place. That place is Jerusalem. place is a temple, and that's the only place. But if we look at this verse, it says anywhere we you envision as proper implies if you're just thinking about it, no. But if the prophet thinks about it, then you can offer a temporary offering. And this was the famous concept of Elijah Eliyahu, who on Mount Carmel, in a time, in order to scare the Jews away from their service of the idol of that time, the Baal, a very popular idol that many of the Jews were serving, they would serve God and they would serve the Baal. And Eliyahu, Elijah, to take them away from this service, he created a whole test which involved him building a personal altar above in a time when you weren't allowed to. But because this was for God's sake to take away from the Jews this belief in Baal, he knew he was able to do it. And Lubavitcher explains that actually, based on a teaching of the Ragatavagon, that right here in the prohibition of personal altar offerings, of building these personal altars for personal offerings, there's sort of, so to speak, like an asterisk and a footnote that says, but this does not apply to Elijah Shaliyahu on Mount Carmel. Already in the scripture, so to speak, we see implied this is a lot to do. Next verse. So only in the place that God chooses within one of your tribes, there are you to offer up the burnt offering, and there are you to do everything that I am commanding you. Now it says, chooses within one of your tribes, because the land has to belong to a tribe. So Rashi explains it was in Benjamin, in Yemen's portion. But here we're saying it belongs to Benjamin, but if you look previously, it says that actually, in the, now we're in verse 14 and verse 5, it implies that it actually is land that belongs to all of the tribes. So is it Benjamin's or is it all the Jewish people? So how Rashi is explaining this seeming conflict here is that when David purchased this land, well, he really didn't have purchased it because he conquered it, but then he wanted to remove any doubt on its ownership. So besides conquering it, after he conquered it, he paid the king of that area for the land that he just conquered from him, and he gathered the money from all of the tribes. So on one hand, it's in Benjamin's portion. It's 
success stories that David conquered. On the other hand, since all of the tribes paid for the land that was already conquered, in a sense, the land belongs to all the tribes. Next verse. Except with the fullness of your appetite, you may slaughter and eat meat in accord with the blessings of God your God that he has given you in all of your cities. The richly unclean and the clean will eat it like the deer and gazelle. What are we talking about here? What's this is talking about? Is it saying that when you want to eat meat, you can eat it without offering a sacrifice? Now, in the desert, we're thinking like, yeah, of course, you, you slaughter a cow, you could eat it. Well, in the desert, they weren't allowed to. The desert, there's no such concept of taking a cow, slaughtering it ritually, and then eating it. Slaughtering it, salting it, soaking it, rinsing it, and eating it. No. Any time they wanted meat, they had to offer an offering, meaning God got a portion, the priest got a portion, and the owner got a portion. That's how they ate just meat that they wanted to eat. But it can't be that that's the point of this verse, to say, unlike in the desert, when you can't eat, except through offering a, a sacrifice, when you come to Israel, you can eat it without a sacrifice. That sounds like something we should learn, but the verse raised told that to us. Because we, or not already, because we haven't had it yet, actually, but in verse 20, we're now in 15, it's going to clearly state that. So, what's this verse going to say? The Rashi says the point of this verse is to say that if you had an animal that you dedicated as an offering, but then it received a blemish, which disqualifies it for being an offering, you can redeem the animal, and that animal you can now eat freely, so to speak, anywhere. In other words, if you offer an offering to God, of which you're allowed to eat part of the meat. You can't then take it home and eat it in your pork or in your kitchen. You have to eat the meat of the sacrifice within the sanctuary. But these animals were designated sacrifices, but were never sacrificed on an altar. So these animals, you redeem them, you can eat them anyway. That's what, that's what this verse is saying. But then Rashi says, well, does this apply to all blemishes? I mean, it is three types of blemishes an animal can have, or a person can have for that matter. A permanent blemish or a transient one. So Rashi says, if you look at the verse, the opening word of this verse is except, which implies there's an exception. So what would be the exception to this rule of if the animal has a blemish, then you can redeem it and you can eat it anywhere? The exception is, logically speaking, a transient blemish. Because if it's a transient blemish, if we wait, the blemish will go away. So therefore wait, and then the blemish will go away, and then it can still be used as a sacrifice. But if it's a permanent blemish that happens after it's already designated as a sacrifice, then redeem it and eat it anyway. But though you're allowed to slaughter it and eat it, that's the most you can do with it. You can't shear it. You can't milk it. You, can have, you can't have any of these benefits with it because it has a certain holiness attached to it. It was designated as a sacrifice. You just can't sacrifice it now. Now, the verse states that the ritually unclean and clean will eat it, meaning this was animals originally supposed to be a sacrifice. Now, if it was a sacrifice, meat, which comes in contact with anything unclean, can't be eaten. That disqualifies it from being eaten. So how do I view this animal? Like, it was supposed to be a sacrifice. Now it's not. Does this law of the sacrifice still apply? So the verse is saying no. And that's why the verse has to tell you clearly no. Since it's no longer a sacrifice, even though it does have retained some residual holiness, which is why you can't shear it or you can't milk it, but this concept, that if someone unclean eats from it, 
that uncleanliness is coming in contact with the animal and therefore disqualifying the animal does not apply and a spiritually unclean person is allowed to eat from it and it will not affect and harm the meat at, at all. And now we're comparing it like the meat of the deer or gazette because those animals can never be offered as sacrifices. So therefore, just like that meat can never be sacrificed and therefore obviously an unclean person meat for that meat. No issue, it's never sacrificed. So to these previously designated but no longer sacrifices, these meats also can be eaten by the unclean and it's not a problem. And another piece of knowledge we get by comparing this animal to like the deer is just as the deer can never be a sacrifice and therefore the gift of sacrifice will never be given from a deer. So also here, since this animal is no longer designated as a sacrifice, those gifts of the sacrifice have nothing to do with this animal, and therefore all those parts of the animal that normally will be given away are to the priest are given away here because it's not a sacrifice, just like the deer. Next verse, however, you may not eat the blood. On the earth are you to fill it like water. In other words, why do I have to take this? Because I would think, well... Normally, if it was a sacrifice, I would take his blood and sprinkle it on the altar. But now it's not a sacrifice, so I can have the blood. But no, we're told, even though it's not a sacrifice, you can't have the blood. Fill it like water. Why are we comparing it to water? We just fill it. The Rashi's explanations, one is that this blood doesn't have to be covered just as the water wouldn't have to be covered. Normally, if you're slaughtering kosher fowls, or wild animals, the blood has to be covered. But if we have domesticated animals, like this cattle that was designated as a sacrifice but is not now being offered as a sacrifice, we consider the blood of the cattle as a domesticated animal like water, and just as water doesn't have to be covered when it spills on the ground, it doesn't have to either. Another understanding of water is that just as if water falls on edible seeds, it qualifies them now to be contaminated, so too if this blood will come in contact with these seeds, the same conditioning for contamination, so to speak, ritual contamination, would now apply. Now it is possible for these seeds to absorb contamination. Next verse. You are not permitted to eat in your cities the taste of your grain and your wine and your olive oil and the firstborn of your cattle and your flocks and all your pledges that you pledge and your donations and truma, the separations of your hands. So here, over all of these issues, we have a negative commitment. So the verse says you're not permitted. Literally, it would mean you're not able to do this. So Rashi explains the quote where it says you're able. You're able, but you're not permitted. And then Rashi gives a very long example of this concept when we say you're not able we mean you really are able, but you're not permitted. The example here, we're actually going back to the idea of, remember before in today's fortune, we mentioned how King David bought, after he conquered the area from the Yavusi, he bought from the king of the Yavusi, Aravna, that area of the temple. So now, returning to that same story, the Yavusim, when they dwelled in Jerusalem, and it says that the sons of Yehuda of Judah were not permitted, were not able to drive them off. What does that mean? Well, they were able, technically. They had the manpower and the strength of arms to conquer this nation, 
but they weren't permitted because Abraham made a covenant with them when he bought the cave for very thorough, the cave of the Machpelah. When he bought that, he said for a number of generations, no, none of his descendants would take over the rest of their land. And that's why it says that when the Jews came to conquer it, the Yerushim said to them, you can't come here unless you're going to throw away the blind and the lame. And the blind and the lame, the blind refers to Isaac. They had a statue that so to speak was supposed to resemble Isaac because he was blind in his old age. And the lame refers to Jacob, who for a certain portion of his life was lame. Okay, so when the angel struck him and his fighting with him. And they had these two statues, big statues, representing, so to speak, Isaac and Jacob. They have here the words of this treaty that Abraham had made, which gave for certain generations prohibition to take over their spine. Of course, when David came and conquered, this was already after the generations, and he was, of course, allowed to undo. When it speaks here about the firstborn of the cattle, this prohibition applies to the priests, because only the priests in general can eat from the firstborn of the animals. And this last point, when it says the truma, what we're talking about here is truma, it refers to the first fruit that the farmers brought and gave to the priest. The next verse, verse 18, rather before God your God are you to eat it in the place that God your God chooses, you and your sons and your daughter and your male slaves and your female slaves and the Levite in your cities, and you will be happy in the presence of God your God with the totality of your handiwork. So when it says eat it before God, it means in the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And it says among all the people you're supposed to give to joy to, you're also supposed to make the Levites joyous. Because the Levite doesn't have his own portion. So you give him his portion. So, for example, the tithe goes to the Levite. But let's say you don't have it anymore. You already gave it to a different Levite. At this point, give him the tithe for the poor. Well, let's say you don't have any more of the tithe for the poor because you gave it to another poor person. And just invite him to eat with you from your own offering. Next verse, 19. Watch yourself, lest you forsake the Levite all your years on your land. And whenever it says watch yourself, it means there's a negative prohibition that when you're in Israel, you have to make sure to take care of the Levite because he doesn't have his portion. But the verse is, is explicitly saying the extra watch for the Levites happens in Israel. Because in the diaspora, he is no different than any other group because none of us have a portion of the land. So then, if a Levite needs help from you, he's like every other poor Jew. Next verse, 20. When God your body, God expands your borders as he promised you, and you will say, but like to eat meat, because you have an appetite to eat meat. To the full extent of your appetite to eat meat. Again, this is what we mentioned before, that in the, in the desert, if they want to eat meat, they have to offer a sacrifice. God gets a piece, the priest gets a piece, and they get a piece. So it already made it more holy. But here we're saying in Israel, you're just going to say, I don't have a say. And God said, okay, you'll watch it. You don't have to necessarily give me an offer, you can have one. So if we look here, it says, when God expands your borders, then you should say, I would like to eat meat. Your Rashi says, the Torah teaches you proper behavior. You shouldn't start craving meat unless you already have this expansion, unless you already have this affluence. 
Now, he said this was only allowed in Israel, in the desert. If they wanted meat, they had to offer sacrifice, a peace offering it was called. So they got a portion, the priest got a portion, and God got a portion. Those they call a peace offering because everyone gets peace. Everyone gets a portion of it. So there's peace there. Next verse. When the place is distant from you that God your God chooses to set his presence there, you may slaughter some of your cattle or your flock that God gave you as I commanded you. And you will eat in your cities with all your appetite. So when we're in Israel, it's going to be hard. We can't go, you know, walking all the way to the tabernacle every day to offer the sacrifice. Now you can. Now the tabernacle is with you. Then you won't be able to. So you can eat it. You don't have to make an offering, but you have to slaughter it as I have commanded you. Here we're being taught there's a special godly way to slaughter animals. These are the godly laws that Moses received at Sinai, how animals are supposed to be slaughtered. 